The Morse Force, Monday through Friday, 12 noon live on YouTube, Facebook, and other affiliates. Also archived on iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and other affiliates. You're welcome to join the program. I'm doing an open line segment today. 617-396-4830. 617-396-4830. Now, that is my Skype number, so if you call that number, you will get through and we'll hear you live on the air. And if you actually want to go live with a video, I mean, and you have a, you're sitting by your your uh, laptop or you have your smartphone with a camera, you can actually go live by video and I'll put you up video and we can have a split screen conversation. So come on down. It's amazing the things you could do now with technology. I mean, and here I am, you know, this one, this kind of like uh, regular schmuck sitting at my, my dining room table and I can do this program that reaches across the world live and I can take calls. It's absolutely amazing to me. Uh, let's see. So the number again, 617-396-4830. 617-396-4830. Now, I want to respond to some of the commentary uh, that emanated from my interview with E. Michael Jones, the author of Culture Wars, the author of, Digi I mean, the uh, host of Culture Wars website and publication, and books including Degenerate Moderns and the uh, Revolutionary Jewish Spirit or the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which was the topic of our interview. Um, and some of the comments that I got um, in response to that were really scathing and, and very, very intense. And, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to go so far as to say that they, they suggest a form of anti-Semitism but they certainly border on it, and um, and I would say that it shows an anti-Jewish bias on the part of Christians, primarily. So I want to um, I want to follow up on that. You know, I look. I've got other shows scheduled this week. I've got Daniel Crothammer coming on on Friday, who is the son of the late columnist Charles Crothammer, and who has written a great book about his father and about has published some of his father's unpublished columns. And, uh, but, I, but I still want to work with this issue a bit today and uh, comment on it. And I think the way to do that is to actually read some of these comments that have been posted on my YouTube channel and then respond to them. Um, it says here, um, Mr. Morse, could you please recollect, even if vaguely, what was Dr. Jones' response to your 34-minute assertion of Talmudic references about Christ. And uh, this is from Daniel John. Um, Daniel, that I think was the part of the interview that we lost. You only heard my response, and I apologize for that. Certainly, you know, for people who think this is a Jewish conspiracy, uh, all I can tell you is that uh, Dr. Jones has his comments widely disseminated on his own YouTube channel and on his guest on other YouTube channels. He's got a vastly larger audience than I have, and he has no problem discussing this issue, as do other hosts. So there's no attempt to censor a conversation about the Talmud. In fact, I'm happy to mention a few things right now um, about what I think of, of that. Um, I think Dr. Jones's position is that the Talmud 
has unflattering comments in it about Jesus, but more fundamentally, he views the Talmud as the invention of a new religion, which he, cl which he contends occurred after the Jews did not accept Jesus's messiahship, and that in order to continue, they decided to invent rabbinic Judaism and codify that form of Judaism in the form of the Talmud. And of course, there are two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud, which is the more authoritative of the two, because Babylon was a much safer place for Jews after after the um, destruction of the Second Temple, and that it was a major center of Jewish learning and, and settlement in the centuries afterwards. And then there's the Palestinian Talmud, or the Jerusalem Talmud, which uh, took place in Palestine, which is what the country was called after the suppression of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, and that was a shorter Talmud because conditions were more difficult for the rabbis and the Sanhedrin. They often were in hiding. They often had to move around because they were going to be placed under arrest. They often had to operate in secret because of Roman decrees, depending on who was emperor at the time. So that Talmud is much more uh, much less authoritative. It was much. It has much less weight because it didn't have. You know, the Jews couldn't do a Talmud in Palestine. And by the way, let me just mention as a little side point here. Um, Michael Jones's book is brilliant. He's a great scholar, um, but I do think he used the word Palestine a couple of times um, in a non-historic way. Jesus was not a Palestinian. Um, the region was not called Palestine in his lifetime. It was called Judea. The, uh, the people that lived there were called Judeans, hence you have Jews. Jesus was one of them. The term Palestine was only coined after um, 140 AD and the suppression by the Romans of the Bar Kokhba uprising and uh, the final defeat in Betar of the Jews where who knows how many tens of thousands of Jews were murdered and slaughtered by the Romans. And it was then that Hadrian, after having built a Greek temple or a Roman temple on the site of the second temple ruins, and after renaming Jerusalem Alia Capitolina and moving the capital to Caesarea, which is a uh, port on the coast of the Mediterranean, and which ruins are, by the way, still there. Very interesting. Um, he renamed the whole region Palestina. And he called it Palestina because as a mocking way of referring to Jews, because he said Jews no longer exist. There is no more Judea. They have no more land. In his mind, as a Roman, I suppose, he could not conceive of a people existing without a land, without a country. And so he felt that with the final defeat of the Jews, they had disappeared from history. And so he renamed the land Palestina after the ancient enemy of the Jews, that being the Philistines. That's the enemy that is in the book of Judges, the book of Kings. It's the enemy that King Saul and then King David fought against and eventually David defeated. 
and uh, they were gone. I mean, they had disappeared from the annals of history at that point. Well, he brought them back maybe three or four centuries later in a way to say that the Jews no longer exist. So that's where the word Palestine comes from. And, you know, just to bring things up to today, it is a word that was embraced by Zionists who wanted to return to the ancient homeland and rebuild a Jewish state as we're commanded to do by the Torah, they considered themselves to be Palestinians. They called themselves Palestinian Jews. In fact, uh, the word Palestinian, I mean, my great aunt who, who died at 92, whose son made Aliyah, he went up and settled in Israel, um, she had a gigantic coffee table book, a really beautiful book, and emblazoned across the front of the book in big block letters was the word Palestine. And then under that, in script, is written the land of Israel. So Palestine was simply the name of the country before the Israelis declared independence in 1948 and renamed the country Israel in a way that a lot of nations do. You know, when they become independent, they drop the, the colonial name, the, na the designated name, and they go to a more indigenous, more natural name, like, like Rhodesia, for example, became Zimbabwe. Um, Burma became Myanmar. Cambodia became Kampuchea. You know, this is not uncommon. It's not unthinkable. So thus, Palestine became Israel. Um, let me go back to the Talmud. Sorry about the little sidebar there. And by the way, you're welcome to join the program. We're live. 617-396-4830. 617-396-4830. Come on down. I'll put you in the air. We can talk about this issue or whatever else you'd like to talk about. Now, the Talmud, um, the Christian view of the Talmud, the traditional view that E. Michael Jones embraces is that the Talmud was a reinvention of Judaism. It was, there was no longer a temple. There was no longer sacrifice. There was no longer a high priesthood. All of that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And so they had to reinvent the um, the, the faith based on the synagogue and based on rabbis, and that these rabbis basically were making it up as they went. Um, I simply would point out that that is not historically accurate. First of all, the first temple was destroyed, and the Jews survived that. They were exiled, most of them, not all, but most of them were exiled to Babylonia, where they continued to worship under their leadership, under the emerging rabbis. In fact, that's where the rab rabbinic tradition began, and that when they returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, the, um, the, the, the synagogue continued to develop because of problems that existed with the Hasmonean dynasty, which was emanating from the Maccabees and which was not always you know, evenly handled. It was, it was not a great administration in certain times. It went good and bad, like most absolute rules do. Uh, empires do, or states. And so the rabbinic movement continued. In fact, under, 
under Queen uh, Salome, Shlomit Zion, she's called, in Jewish history. She was the wife of Alexander Janaeus, who died, and he was a horrendous, evil king. But she was a good queen, and she, along with her brother, Shimon ben Shetak, who was a very saintly figure, they developed the, first, the world's first public school system. And they developed Jewish education. Uh, the rabbinic movement was already building. It was called the Pharisees. You know, the Sadducees were the other cult. They were the ones who often controlled the temple. And they were very Hellenistic and very Greek and secular. Um, they didn't adhere to the moral and ethical precepts of the Torah. Um, so there was a struggle in Israel. It was a civil war, actually. One that ultimately culminated in the, in the, um, the rebellion of 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. But rabbinic Judaism was developing all along. It was well on its way during the life of Jesus. Um, and it continued onward until eventually the Talmud was codified by Judah Hanazi in, I think, uh, maybe um, it was after the Bar Kokhba rebellion. It was under the reign of the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who apparently Judah Hanazi collaborated with. He was the great philosopher emperor. He brought Greek knowledge. He brought logos, if you will, to use Michael Jones's term, to, um, to Rome. And he closely collaborated with Judah Hanazi. They admired each other. They shared information. And Judah Hanazi is credited as the first Nazi, the Nazi being the head of the Sanhedrin, to begin to write down the Talmud. Now, traditionally, the Talmud is viewed as oral law, going all the way back to Sinai. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the written law, he also gave what's called the oral law, the Shebal Peh, along with the Shebal Torah. And the written law would be passed down through the generations by learned, holy men. Now, the you know, eventually it was written down because it had to be, because Judaism had lost its temple. It had lost its, its uh, foothold in Israel, in, in, in Judea, which became known as Palestine. And so it was decided by the Sanhedrin that out of necessity, they would have to begin to write down the Talmud. And that's what happened. Now, um, you know, the Talmud, by the way, the, uh, the Sanhedrin was an extraordinary body of, of men. There were 71 members. The 71st would be the, the Nazi. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be both a, a, have a be, be exemplary spiritually, but you also had to be a practical person. You had to make a living. You had to have a trade. You had to be married. You had to have children. You had, there was all these requirements on family life. And you had to be learned. And the fact that the Sanhedrin consistently found men of that caliber over a 300-year period under great adversarial conditions, I may point out, is actually an amazing story. And one of the last heads of the Sanhedrin, the Babylonian Sanhedrin, Mar Zutra, led, helped the 
Persian emperor, um, whose name escapes me right now. This is the Parthian emperor. This is already, we're talking, you know, Christian times. We're talking about modern era. This is after Constantine. He helped the emperor put down a what, what could be described as the world's first communist revolution with this guy Mazdak, who was a communist head of a radical group that wanted to redistribute the wealth. They wanted to take over all private property. They believed, they believed in free love, which is to say, you know, kind of what Sigmund Freud has continued. And by the way, one of the things um, Michael and I talked about in that, in that deleted segment was Sigmund Freud. I'll get into that in a minute. But anyways, it was Marzutra, the head of the, the, um, you know, the Jewish community of Babylonia that rose up and helped the, the Parthians get rid of Marzdak and, and put Mar Marzdak would be eventually executed and his movement suppressed. Now, there are some people who say that the Marzdak movement the ideas of Mazdak, the communist ideas, would be resurrected maybe about a century later, or maybe even less than that, in the form of Shiite Islam, that Shiism, the Shiites, are kind of influenced by Mazdak and his communist movement. Um, so anyway, that was the end of the, the era of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was not communist. They were not. Uh, they they were they were absolutely true to the Torah. They worked hard to interpret the Torah in as close a way they could to the true meaning that God intended, and that's why these were such spiritual and learned men because only they could qualify to do that. You couldn't just have any. You know, any schmo off the street decide what the Torah meant. You had to have experts. And their record was amazing and exemplary. Now, what about the charge made by um, medieval Christians, uh, particularly uh, Nicholas Donan, who was a apostate Jew, he became Christian, he became Catholic, and he went to the Pope, and then he went to St. Louis of, of uh, Paris, King Louis, and said the Talmud has blasphemy in it about Jesus. And the response by Louis was to burn 13 crates of Talmuds. Now, did the Talmud have blasphemous comments about Jesus? Uh, I, we don't know. I mean, I've never actually seen them quoted. Um, there is a book that was written about Jesus called Toledot Jeshu, and I did mention this to Michael Jones, and that is blasphemous toward Jesus. Very nasty book. Not Talmud, not recognized by any official body of Judaism as anything other than what it is, a book. It's like a novel. You know, it's like getting the latest, you know, Stephen King novel. It was a book, you know, I mean, it, but it influenced Judaism and it was not good. And I'm not here to apologize for it. It's a shame. It's actually a disgrace. And Jews should not be getting into that subject. It portrayed Jesus in a very negative light. And it did have influence, unfortunately. I just am pointing out that it was not Talmud. 
and that most of the stuff attributed to the Talmud is actually in the book Toledot Jeshu. Now, the one comment that is attributed to the Talmud that I want to comment on, and again, I haven't actually seen it in the Talmud. I'd like to someone to show me this, to send it to me, to prove that it's in the Talmud. And that is that Jesus was condemned to burn in hell in excrement. And what I've, I've did a little research on this. And what I discovered is that uh, according to some Jewish commentators, this was a passage that was written by Onkelos. Now Onkelos was a very honored and revered member of the Sanhedrin. He was very qualified to comment and his comments are very extensive in the Torah. He's a brilliant, brilliant scholar. But Angelos also was a Roman. He was not native Jewish. He's not native Judean, I should say. Um, he converted from paganism. And not only had he been a pagan Roman citizen, but he was a major player in the Roman cult. He was... Uh, you know, involved in Roman religion at a very high level. Maybe he might have been a Roman priest. I don't know. But the reference that he makes to Jeshu, and we don't even know if that means Jesus, by the way, burning an excrement in hell. He also says Titus burning an excrement in hell. Mentions a couple of other people burning an excrement in hell. That, that he was talking about his belief in his previous time as a pagan. Now, that's the opinion of some rabbis. I don't know. You know, we don't know. We, we can't go back there and be sure. But um, it seems to me likely that that is the case because Judaism, both Talmudic and rabbinic and ancient, and Judaism in all of its forms, it does not view hell as, a, an, as an anthropomorphic place with, with, with people that look like people. You know, we don't believe in a devil. We don't believe in, you know, a place where there's fire coming up the walls and, you know, all the images that we have of hell. We believe that hell is more of a mystery. It's, uh, it's where the fallen souls go. But we don't know what it looks like. We never describe it. We don't know, you know what, what happens. We know that at the time of the resurrection, according to Ezekiel, then people will, will, will come back to life. But, but the, the whole concept of hell and heaven, I point out, in Judaism is much more uh, metaphorical. I mean, it's, it's more abstract. It's a... We, we, we understand, we leave that to the mystery of the creator of the universe, and we acknowledge that we, we don't or we can't really conceptualize this any more than we conceptualize God as, a, as an anthropomorphic being, as a person. These concepts are not the Jewish approach, but they are the Christian approach. Christianity does view God as, as somewhat of, a, of an anthropomorphic figure. It does view heaven as a place, where there's a gateway and there's angels and, you know, you've got St. Peter and, and they view hell in the same way. And so this description is more Christian than Jewish and it's certainly more pagan than Jewish, which is why I tend to think 
that it's not likely that this was a, a portrayal of Jesus in hell. Uh, but for the sake of argument, let's say that it is. And when I say that, I want to preface it by noting that Jews do not curse Jesus. We don't discuss Jesus, frankly. Religious Jews are forbidden to talk about Jesus, probably because they're fearful that people might convert. They want to keep the, 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 the Torah, the, the, the covenant as is. I'll admit that. I mean, the, 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 the faith of, of Christianity is very luring. There's a reason why it is what it is. It's fantastic. Um, but, but because of that, I mean, I suppose our attitude toward Jesus could be found in the famous Broadway play, Fiddler on the Roof, when the people of, Tev of, of, of um, Anatevka, the, uh, the small village, the shtetl uh, of, of uh, Reptevia, the head of the, the, the star of the play, they're sitting around with their rabbi on Shabbos evening. They, they call it the rabbi's tish, the rabbi's table. You're very honored as a community member to be invited to spend a Friday evening with the rabbi. And they asked the rabbi, do you have a blessing? Because they say blessings at that time, and there's kiddish, and there's services, and there's prayer. And they say to the rabbi, do you have a blessing for the czar? And the rabbi thinks for a minute, and he ponders this, and he rubs his beard, and he's like, um. And then he says, may the Lord bless and keep the czar far away from us. Well, that's been the attitude of Judaism toward Jesus. We bless Jesus, we honor Jesus, but we don't really want to go too near Jesus. You know, we want to keep Jesus, let that be a Christian matter. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been some anti-Christian Jews. I mean, that's another story. But I'm pointing out that it, it's not, we don't curse Jesus. That's, that's completely false. I mean, there's no evidence of that. I mean, I'm not saying that individual Jews didn't out of anger, maybe during, you know, a difficult time. But Judaism itself does not do that. Now, if in fact there are anti-Christian or anti-Christ or anti-Jesus comments in the Talmud, what I would suggest, and I, and I did say this to Michael Jones, and we did grapple with this, so I'm giving you a little bit of what was said that you missed because of my stupidity in handling the computer. What, what, we, what was said was that there were some very bitter feelings at that time. I mean, Michael Jones mentions Bar Kokhba as the birth of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Well, it just so happens that the Jews who followed Bar Kokhba, and it was many, if not most, and it's, it's a shame that they did, it was insane, but they expected the Christians to join them, right? The early Christian church, this was, again, this was less than 100 years after the crucifixion. It was about 100 years. And at that time, Christians were still thought of as Jews or as a sect of Jews. The, the schism really hadn't been complete. And so they expected the Christians to join them and rise up all over the Roman Empire, and it didn't happen. 
because Christians rejected Bar Kokhba and they rejected the rebellion. And so there was a betrayal and that was the final break between Christians and Jews. And, and Bar Kokhba was killed. His rebellion was completely defeated. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that was the last gasp of, of the messianic period, which included Jesus, I might point out, but which really began when the Roman general Pompey entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, defiled the temple, slaughtered, I don't know, many, many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, and effectively ended Jewish sovereignty. It was at that point that Jews started to look for a Messiah to come back and rescue Judea from the brutal hands of the Romans and rise up and, you know, and free Israel, free Judea. Jesus was a part of that movement. Uh, there were other people that claimed to be Messiah that were also a part of that movement. Now, I'm not getting into a question of Jesus' Messiahship. I understand that that's you know, a separate matter. I'm not commenting on that. I'm simply pointing out that his Messiahship came during this period, the period between General Pompey's ending of, of Jewish sovereignty and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which happened maybe about 80, 80 90, 100 years after Jesus was executed. Um, and that it was a period of great tumult with regard to a Messiah, a period that ended with the execution of Bar Kokhba. Um, but there was a lot of bitterness and a lot of hard feelings on the part of both Christians and Jews toward each other, a lot of animus. Um, in fact, Michael Jones actually does a good job of quoting St. John Chrysostom of Antioch, who was concerned, he was an early Christian uh, priest, and he was concerned over too much fraternization between Christians and Jews in that town. So he got up and he started to deliver these sermons <coughs> where you know, the Jews are, the women are whores and the men are effeminate and they're evil and they, they, they killed Christ. I think he was the one who started the whole killing Christ narrative and that you shouldn't associate with them, you shouldn't go near them, they're polluted, they're going to corrupt you, they're going to rape your daughters, you know, they're going to do evil, right? And he wrote some of the most anti-Jewish uh, diatribes in history. I mean, they, they still are around. And those were things that flew around the Roman Empire like, like email. You know, they made their way around. And there was others. There was St. Athanasius, and there were some others who also started to really you know, separate from the Jews in a very nasty way. Well, the Jews were doing the same thing. I mean, that's what Toledo Jeshu was written. That's when this kind of stuff worked its way possibly into the Talmud. That is, if it did. And again, I don't know. Um, and, and I just think we need to view these things in that context. Now, I'll simply finish up here by pointing out something else that I brought up to E. Michael Jones, to make the case that there is such a thing as Christian anti-Semitism, not just anti-Judaism. 
and that is two passages which work their way into the New Testament, both of which I don't think really were meant to be there. I think they were put into the mouth of Jesus by people who were angry at Jews. Don't forget, much of the New Testament was written down maybe 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion. One of them is in the book of Matthew when, when, uh, when he has the, uh, the crowd gathered around the, the crucifixion saying and chanting that his blood will be on us and on every generation after us. Now, the second one, of course, is even worse. That's in the book of John where Jesus actually is, is attributed to having said that the Jews are of a synagogue of Satan, that they're the spawn of the devil. Now, both of these comments are anti-Semitic because they're not just criticizing Judaism as a religion. They're criticizing the Jewish people. I mean, that means that Ju the Jewish people, the first one means that every Jewish person uh, from every generation right up till today <coughs> is to be viewed as guilty of killing, killing Christ. And the second one, of course, is saying that every Jewish person right up till today is genetically a, a, a um, son of Satan. Getting a little cold here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's my contention that these comments were put into the, the New Testament. This is not, I don't believe that Jesus would have said these things. <coughs> and I don't believe that the crowd around his crucifixion would have said that because those are not Jewish ideas. Um, yeah, it just doesn't, I mean, first of all, in Judaism, you're not guilty of the sins of your father up to the second generation, I think. So it, it, it's something that should be rejected. The Jews don't think that way. And as far as the synagogue of Satan comments and the sons of Satan, or, you know, the spawn of the devil, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have said that about all Judeans. He probably said it about the people he was confronting face to face. He was, there was a delegation of Jews or Judeans. Yes, he was probably saying that about them because of who they were. But I don't think it, it doesn't make sense that he would be saying that about all Judeans because Jesus himself was half Judean. I mean, according to Christian understanding, he was half descended from God. I mean, right? He was half Jewish, right? His mother was, was Jewish, and his father was God Almighty. So, I mean, that is unless you consider God to be Jewish. I mean, I kind of do, but that's a personal thing. Uh, but putting that aside, he would have been condemning his own mother. He would have been condemning her family. He would have been condemning St. Joseph, her husband. He would have been condemning all of his own disciples, because if, you, if Jews are, to, are the spawn of, of the devil, then, then that includes them too. So it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you can disagree, but I don't believe that he was talking about all Jews. I think he was, again, talking about a small group of Jews that are probably the same people I would say would be satanic. Not the sons of, not the spawn of Satan, but they probably did embrace satanic ideas because... There's always been an element in Judaism and in Christianity and in all religions 
where you have a small population that does embrace Satanistic ideas, that are satanic. And we need to watch for them in every generation and guard against them with moral and ethical code and with standing up to them and exposing them and identifying them so that we can keep them at bay, whether they be Jewish, Christian, or otherwise. I mean, there aren't too many Jews in communist China or Christians, and yet they murdered up, Mao Zedong murdered up to 50 million people. Are they the spawn of Satan? I don't know if we should look at it that way, but we certainly should look at it as satanic because communism is satanic, and so is Nazism and radical Islam, in my opinion. Anyway, I think I've exhausted the issue here, so I want to thank you for watching. Um, I am going to be doing the program as often as I can, Monday through Friday at 12 noon live, um, which, uh, this being the internet, I, I can't guarantee I'll be here every day because I don't have to be, and I've got other obligations. I have to work. <laughs> um, but I'm going to try to, and again, I want to give out the number, so you might want to write this down, and maybe tomorrow when I come on at noon, you're welcome to call. The number is 617-396-4830, 617-396-4830. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's free. You'll get this program every day. You'll get other special programs. It would help me, frankly, because I need to reach a thousand members so I can begin to uh, to monetize the program, and that would really help me do it more often. Because it would be great if I could make a little bit of a living from this. Right now, I don't. So, please consider subscribing. There's no obligation. You don't have to stay with it. You can always unsubscribe. It's easy. You just click the button subscribe on the YouTube channel. Anyway. Once again, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Check out my books. They're available at Amazon.com. Just put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, and they shall come up. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great day.